This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited to launch this new podcast listener support project. We hope you'll visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for finding out ways of how you can support the podcast, but get stuff in return, like books from our guests here on the podcast, like sending in questions for upcoming guests, like joining me on an actual interview with one of our guests. And of course, the VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly by joining me with whoever we bring in for the podcast stage. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two Advocacy in Action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy in Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is the president of Freedom Road and the former chief church engagement officer of Sojourners. She's the author of multiple books, including The Very Good Gospel and Evangelicals Do Not Equal Republican or Democrat. Lisa, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks, Andy. It's really great to be here. Well, many of us have been following your writing and your work for years, but before we get to that, tell us a little bit about uh, the Lisa behind the keyboard and the microphone. The best, way, the best way for me to talk about who I am is actually to start with those who came before me, because I really do believe that we are, um, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, and they are literally in us. That is the DNA that we have in our bodies that makes up who we are. It is literally our ancestors. And so in order to understand who I am, you really do have to understand who they were. Um, my ancestors here in the United States stretch back on U.S. soil. Uh, in terms of those who came to the U.S. as immigrants, they go back to 1682 and 1686 are the earliest that we can trace. Um, they were in Maryland, um, and uh, I'm actually that's actually one of the it's the opening chapter of my of my next book is actually about their story because they lived at a time at the time and they were they were impacted by the race codes that were created in that same era um their their names were maudlin mcgee she was ulster irish and sambo game he was likely from uh either um uh uh gee he was uh, either mali or um uh gambia um, in that area. And um, so we know that he came over likely on one of the only ships that came for a decade between the mid 1670s and 1680s. And he probably came in 1686 on the Speedwell. That was the name of the ship. Carried more than 200 people um, from Gambia. Um, and Senegal is actually the larger country that Gambia is kind of sandwiched in. Um, and Gambia really only consists of a river, the river that uh, where they loaded enslaved people onto the docks in order to take them across the ocean. Um, so uh, Sambo and uh, Maudlin had an affair and they had a young girl named Fortune and Fortune because she was mixed race, ended up bearing the brunt of, and also Maudlin as well, but they ended up bearing the brunt of the race laws at the time. And so she was indentured for 31 years because her parents were, were biracial, were black and white. And, uh, and then she had children and there's no father listed anywhere for those children. And she ended up being indentured for longer and those children ended up being indentured for 21 years, which is an indication that their father was white um, because that was the law. If you, if, if you had an affair or got married to, a, um, uh, if a mixed race or black woman got married uh, to a white man or had, had an illegitimate child with a white man, then uh, their child would be indentured for 21 years. With a black man, it would be 31 years. So that's one way that you can identify the, uh, the color of the father and the racial 
the racialized hierarchy within which the father stood. And so for most of those, most of the children in that, in the fortune line, um, they ended up being changing their last name to fortune. Um, in that line, for two or three generations, they were, they were indentured. And then finally, they were all free around by about 1745. And um, so that line carries forward to my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, who, was, uh, who left uh, the South, left Virginia in the middle of the Great Migration and made his way up to New York City. And it's, you know, that my next book actually goes through multiple branches of my family's story. I won't, I won't take up too much time here to talk about that. But just to say that one of the things that I found um, in, in, the, in the search is that, you know, my people, the people who make me who I am, they were people who were resilient. They were people who suffered incredible amounts of loss um, because of uh, systemic oppression, the oppression of indenture, the impression, the oppression of slavery, the oppression of the removal of Native American people from their homelands, um, both from sale, uh, literally the sale of Native people um, in the South uh, onto, onto plantations before Black slavery, um, and then also into the Caribbean. Um, and so, you know, I often, I think about the new science that's happening right now about trauma and about how trauma lives in our DNA and is passed down from generation to generation. And I've just been really kind of marveling almost, I don't really have words for it yet, but to think about the trauma that exists inside my DNA and the DNA of my sisters and my family. And then I, you know, when I think about some of the family craziness, which I know we all have, it's not, I mean, our family is really no different than any other human family on the planet, but except to say that there's been a lot of cray cray. <laughs> there's been a lot of cray cray. And there's also a lot of, um, of, there's just this deep, there's this deep well of sadness that you live life on top of. And you find joy on top of. And that deep well of sadness, I believe, comes from the first and second and third time we were disconnected from land and family. Um, and so our, our people have also been fighters. My mom was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, in Philadelphia, helped to open their Philadelphia office and uh, and then was uh, a part of getting churches, ironically, uh, to be involved um, in the, the struggle for black freedom um, in the mid-60s, 1966 in particular. Um, and my father was a photographer and also, um, also investigated um, CORE at, uh, in the summer of, of 1964. He was considering um, coming down, going down into Mississippi, but he got to them a little too late. Everybody had already signed up and he wasn't able to go. And it was, it, he was brand new. So there was no way he could actually be part of that. But he did, he was, he was there in the movement in the North. And so I, I look at that and I think to myself, there's no way I couldn't have been who I am <laughs> and doing what I am. I just was kind of, I just kind of naturally moved that way. And they were all artists as well. And so am I really at the core, an artist. Um, and so I write and I speak and I work toward 
telling the story and changing the story of America hmm. and our faith. Yeah. No, I, 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 even as, you know, uh, as a historian by, by two degrees, I, I, I'm still baffled at what we used to think was okay and like how crazy mm -hmm. it was to think about. And mm -hmm. it obviously gives me pause to think about what the relative norms are today and how people are going to look back at what we say and do and what we were okay with and mm -hmm. how crazy that is. But, you know, not only here, but also key to your work and your writing, uh, where you come from and who you come from is very clear. Um, the work you've, you've done, uh, you know, around, around Ferguson, um, mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 the events around Michael Brown's death in 2014 is microcosm yeah. of, of what was happening in that community for decades between mm -hmm. members of the community and police. And, and Ferguson, for many, became the starting place of seeing uh, what had previously not been seen or heard, or maybe a little bit more honestly, what we had not been willing to see and to hear. Yeah, I think that's really a good way to put it. Yeah. Yes. So talk to us, talk to us about Ferguson. Talk to us about uh, where we are after the revelations of Ferguson and, and, and the, maybe the goodness that has come out of that in the last few years. Well, well, I mean, Ferguson was, Ferguson was five years ago. It was literally five years ago. And I remember when it all, everybody remembers where they were, you know, almost like we all remember where we were when, if you were alive at the time that JFK was assassinated. I wasn't, <laughs> but my mom can certainly tell me where she was. Um, and, and so Ferguson was that kind of a moment in American history where there was an opening, I believe. There was an opening in, in the universe, um, Michael Brown's death, and in particular, the way he died and, and the way he, they made him lay on the black concrete um, tarmac not tarmac, but on the tar street for four and a half hours in 90 plus degree heat of St. Louis summer, a St. Louis summer. Um, that was unbearable for the people who lived in that neighborhood. It was, it was more than disrespect. It was, it was horrific. And to watch his mother have to watch him um, baking in the middle of the street of a small street in a suburban neighborhood um, where they had never before had a shooting. That, that was unbearable for that community. And, and it was also unbearable because that community was already under siege by the police, um, extorting, ex sorry, exploiting the community financially um, in order to keep the lights on. So they would be stopping people on the street for doing exactly what Michael Brown was accused of doing that day, which is jaywalking or walking in the middle of the street. That street, if you see it, if, you, if you're there, you know it's a very, very quiet street. Um, there's hardly anybody even walking on it. And so for Michael Brown to be walking on that street in the middle of the street, it's really like nothing. Like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I would imagine at the time was the norm. Um, but he was told to get the F off the street by that officer. He was barked at from inside the car. And that's what began the thing that changed our nation. It was, it was that officer barking at, Mar at Michael Brown, telling him to get the F off the street that changed our nation. And his act 
to kill a boy who wasn't even 20 years old yet, who had just graduated from high school because he said he looked like a monster. So I think in that, you know, out of Michael Brown, the United States, um, we, get, we grew a consciousness. I wouldn't say a conscience, but rather um, a consciousness of implicit bias, of the ways and explicit bias. I think that the reality that explicit bias is still operating inside our government, um, our, our governmental structures and systems was a true revelation for a lot of people who thought, oh, that's, you know, we, we took care of that in the 60s. But when the, um, when the DOJ came out with its report and found that actually um, Ferguson, like many municipalities throughout the Midwest, um, were using black bodies, black people, black vehicles, black people in order to keep the lights on in their governmental city hall um, and in their courthouse, um, then I think we all woke up. We realized the 60s never really ended. We just went into caves in order to escape it. Um, but we couldn't escape it anymore. And when we began to track the deaths, because Michael Brown wasn't the first that summer. Michael Brown was the fourth, I believe, that summer um, out, of, out of four that happened in a, in a one-month span, um, uh, beginning with Eric Gardner and also including Jonathan Crawford and then Tamir Rice actually later on that, that year um, in November of that year. So we have, we have had since then hundreds of hashtags that have flowed across the, the screens, the social media screens of people around the world as we have, we have kept track of the police killings of our people. And now with the advance of social media and Instagram and, and video and those kind of things, now we see that it's not only limited to police shootings, but it's also it also involves vigilante violence. And we also see that it goes to things as simple as the ability of people of African descent to, speak, to take up space in the public square without being accused of, be, of doing a crime simply by being there. So the criminalization of blackness has become obviated. It's, it's become manifest. Um, we can't deny it anymore. When you have a black man um, be, being arrested inside of a Burger King or Starbucks simply for asking to go to the bathroom, and you know they're not homeless, not even that that would be an issue or should be an issue, but they're just somebody who was there as a customer, had already paid for their, for their stuff, and then was denied the access uh, to the bathroom. Um, and it just it just basically what we have seen, what has been obviated, what's been uh, revealed in this time of revelation over the last five years has been the very real reality of white nationalism in America. And Trump, the, the, the election of Trump is really only a symptom. It's only a manifestation of, of something that is actually really there. And when I say white nationalism, what I'm talking about is the, is the, assume, the assumption that this nation should be led, guided, shaped, and structured by people of European descent for the benefit of people of European descent.
and it's the fight and struggle for the maintenance of white space. And the thing about that is that when we look at the church and how the church voted for Trump, we see that the church, the, the church across the board in the United States, the majority of the white church voted for Donald Trump, even with an explicit white nationalist platform. And of course, the ones who voted most for Donald Trump were evangelicals. Um, there was a there was a um, a poll that was taken last autumn, last fall, um, by PRRI Public um, Religion Research Institute, and Robbie Jones um, did a poll. And in this poll, he the poll revealed that. Um, that out of all of the respondents, and I think they interviewed like 3,000 respondents, um, out of all of the respondents, they one of the last questions they asked them, I'll just say this, I'll say this, that in the first question, um, pretty much everybody answered, oh, I know what the first question was. So um, he asked two questions, and the first question was, when you think back to the 1950s, do you think of the 1950s as being a great period? Do you think of it with nostalgia? And across the board, every group in America, except all people of color, when, when you know, factored out, um, they all uh, remembered the 1950s with nostalgia. Every, every slice. So Democrats, white Democrats, white Republicans, white evangelicals, white Catholics, white mainliners, all white people, the majority of white people, look back on the 1950s with nostalgia. Now, you know, you got to look at that and you got to think, well, why didn't the black folks look back on it with nostalgia? Well, likely because that was the time of Emmett Till and that was the time of, of lynchings and that was the time when uh, uh, Rosa Parks had to sit on a bus and say no to being moved to the back. And that was the beginning of the Freedom Rides. And it was the beginning of the pushback because of winning um, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 right so that was that was the, the height of our struggle so no we don't look back with nostalgia at that era but across the board white folks did in america but then the second question they asked was incredibly revealing they asked the question in the next 20 years you know by by 2035 2045 we're going to have a majority um, people of color nation and those people of color will be leading. They're going to be leading our nation in large part. There's going to be a lot of people of color leaders. Do you think our nation will be better off or worse off? Now, interestingly, across the board, except for one group, across the board, everyone said yes, we'll be better off. Only one group, the majority of that group, said no, we're going to be worse off. And that group was white evangelicals. And when I, I, I was talking with Robbie Jones in, a, in the context of a larger conversation about this with um, some evangelical leaders, and I raised my hand and I just said, Robbie, does this, would you agree with this statement that this finding actually confirms the reality that white evangelicals did not vote for Donald Trump in spite of his white nationalism, but rather because they resonated with it? Mm because they are white nationalists. They actually do in their heart hearts, like in their unspoken heart, want a white nation, want white space that is protected white space. 
they want and believe that the best rule is white rule. And so he actually thought for not that long, didn't take him that long. And he just said, I think that that would be, that would be a, a, a worthy statement that could come from this, this study. Um, he said, yes. And so when I think now about, you know, what we're seeing, we're seeing uh, revelations um, in the public square. We're seeing uh, the revelation of our implicit and explicit bias that is at work within our Christian organizations, especially evangelical organizations, but not at all limited to it. Um, I think that what we're finding is that America needs to be baptized. America needs a full immersion baptism. Um, America needs, and the church needs to be baptized because the church is looking at what's going to be the majority of the people in America and really wishing that they weren't here and that they didn't have to deal with them and that they could just have white space. Um, and the, the majority of the church in America um, is thinking of, of people like me who are people of color, people of African descent and um, Latino descent and Native American descent and Asian descent as, as, as threats, threats to white space. And that's just a shame because actually, you know, the reality is we're not. The reality is we are simply humans and you are simply humans and we are fully humans and you are fully humans. And what it means to be fully human is to be made in the image of God. And we all bear the image of God. And as such, we all are called by God and created with the divine call to exercise stewardship of this land. And so we have to find a way to do that together. We have to find a way to share power on this land. If we don't, we really literally won't have a nation um, within a few generations. And it's because of the, the struggles that we have right now that we're on the brink again of another kind of civil war. We're fighting political civil war right now. Um, we're fighting environmental civil war um, simply on the basis of politics um, and politics that is held mostly by older white men who want things to remain the way they were. There's a refusal to acknowledge the reality of climate change. And that refusal is putting at risk poor people and people of color and anybody with beachfront property. It's putting their own selves at risk because of the desire for something that can never happen again. The past will never happen again. We have to find a way to have a future together. Otherwise, like MLK said, we will die together. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. 
for 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Such a variety of, of things, and and you've written on all these things. You've written on racism and economic injustice and climate change and human rights and the union of religion and politics and education and immigration and on and on. Mm-hmm. There seems to be so much going on in this world, and it can be disheartening and defeating for someone to believe that they can make a difference or that change isn't happening fast enough. So, mm-hmm. so what kind of difference do you hope? your writing um, and your work will make? And what do you say to individuals who see the magnitude of the problems in this world and, and how and where they can get started? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, in my book, The Very Good Gospel, there's a chapter on race and shalom. And um, one of the things that the publishers really made me do, because I, you know, we talk about these things a lot. And so you kind of, you start talking in code and you, you don't actually break it down. Well, they said, no, Lisa, you got to break this down. What is the remedy? Like what, how do we deal with the, with the division in race? Well, in the back of that book, I actually present about nine different things that we need to do. And, and it is actually the biblical, uh, uh, image of baptism and the practice of baptism that I actually um, do frame this in. So I think that there really literally does need to be a baptism. We see in Genesis um, the call for all humanity to exercise dominion and that and, and what that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And yet we live in a world that has been fashioned and shaped by empires struggling for God likeness, struggling for control, struggling for power and money. Um, and and it and and what empires do is they crush the image of God on earth in order to gain their own power. They enslave, they exploit, um, they build tall buildings in order to make names for themselves, and they exploit the, the labor of, uh, of vulnerable people in order to do that. And when I look at the scripture, and I know that the scripture is written entirely by people who were brown colonized people or under threat of colonization like like uh, David and Solomon when I look at that scripture and I ask the question what is the good news um, the good news of Jesus is now very clear to me that Jesus himself was a brown colonized man who who was born in the same year that 2,000 um, Jews were crucified in the northern Galilean area, his area, the area where he was born, in the year he was born, 2,000 people were crucified in that, in one day, because they attempted to rise up against empire, against Caesar, and Caesar squashed them. 
So when Jesus walked the earth 33 years later, and 30 years later, and he and he opened the scroll in the synagogue and turned to Isaiah 61 and said, this is the reason why I have come. This is what I've been called for and declared that what it is is to free the oppressed. He wasn't just talking about spiritual oppression. The only way we can get that from that text is to read that text in Starbucks. We cannot read that text in its own context and think that what he was talking about was simply spiritual oppression. No. And when he talked about prisoners, he wasn't just talking about criminals, although they are most likely incorporated as well. But he was likely talking about political prisoners, people who have been taken prisoner by Rome because of their advance against Rome of their speaking out against Rome, like John the Baptist, who we see showing up a little bit later in that same scripture. And so when we see, when we see in that, in the, in the text, the good news, we see in Luke that Luke sets up the gospel, the good news in the very first uh, opening of, of that text, that in, this all happened in the days of King Herod, in the days of King Herod, in the days of a despot, in the days of a man who built those tall buildings in order to put Caesar's name on it. You know, in those days, God, the king of the kingdom of God, broke into the world in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. That's why Jesus came. And that's why he walked the land for three years and called forth all of the people who would, who would have been crushed by Roman Empire and crushed by his own people as they emulated the, the, the hierarchies of human belonging that Rome taught them to emulate. The disdain for women, the disdain for, uh, for, for the foreigner, the disdain for, the, uh, for, for people who are darker, um, who, are not, um, uh, who are not pure um, pure Jew. Um, and so, so we see that. We see Jesus come against that again and again and again in the text. And then we see him put on the cross by empire, and we see him raised from the dead, beating empire, beating the power that put him in the grave. And we see the church explode. And when the church explodes, the church um, is multi-ethnic, and there is power that goes forth because they all share all things in common. It is a direct confrontation against the, the, the norms of empire that are individualistic and hoard for the self at the sake of the many. And then we see Paul declare in Ephesians uh, 3 or 5, uh, 27 to 29, um, we see him declare that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you have been baptized, and there is no longer Jew nor Greek, and there is no longer slave nor free, and there is no longer woman or male, and those are all power distinctions. So we see that baptism 
what it does, it's 3, 27 to 29, forgive me, that baptism, it washes our eyes clean of the lenses that empire has given us to teach us how to see each other. That after we are baptized, that implicit bias, that explicit bias that makes us look at a, at a human being of African descent and think criminal, that's washed away. Because now all we see is we see the image of God in that human being. And we, we recognize and affirm and, and, and protect and cultivate their call to exercise dominion, stewardship of the world, agency in the world. And that comes directly against the structures that seek to limit stewardship and agency in our world, walls at our border, um, uh, convict leasing, which is still going on today. All of the things, the violence against women, keeping Muslims out of our country, all of the different things, all the different ways that we see right now in our current administration that policy is being developed, public policy is being developed that is crushing the lives of many and limiting their capacity to exercise dominion. What our brown colonized king of the kingdom of God says is set my people free. Set the image of God free on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what gives me hope. And so when I speak and when I write and when I protest, and when I take people on pilgrimage, and when I consult, and when I coach, and when we train, and when we gather others together in order to go deeper into the scripture and to ask the hard questions, what we are doing, what we are seeking to do is to confront the false narrative of human hierarchy that has shaped our world to reveal the truth of what actually happened and to begin to reconcile in our minds and our hearts the narrative that we've been taught and the narrative that is actually what happened both in our world and in scripture and and hopefully prayerfully by the sweat of our brow and the work of our hands build the bridges that will cause a just world to become a real thing. Can you, you can just keep going. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was one of these <laughs> things where it's like, I could listen, I could listen to this all, all day long. And, and <laughs> you know, the, I, I think the thing about following your work and your writing, um, you know, you are inviting people into this uh, through your organization, Freedom Road. You're the founder and president of us. So, Tell us a little bit more about it and how it connects to these things that, that you are, are sharing. Sure. Well, Freedom Road started two years ago, and um, I, I had just transitioned out of Sojourners, um, learned so much in that position, and also um, got to see a lot of the church. And I was rocked like most of us, um, or even I actually believe even the president was rocked by the results of the election. I don't think he expected to win, um, but I was deeply disturbed by it because what it, what it revealed to me was that the gap in our narratives is real. 
that there are at least two major narratives at work um, and in competition with each other in our country. And one of those narratives says that we were great at one time. And another narrative says that we have, we have actually never been actually great. We have a great idea as a country that all, well, it's even been amended, all humanity, not just all men, but all humanity has been made equal and is equally uh, worthy of protection of the law and the ability to flourish and pursue happiness, right? So that's the idea of our nation, but we have absolutely never realized it. So there's never been a time when we've actually been great. And what instead that second narrative sees is that we have instead been pushed, pushed constantly through the abolitionist movement and the suffrage movement and the labor union movement and the environmental movement and the civil rights movement and the LGBTQ movement. We have been pushed again and again and again to be a more perfect union, to invite more people into, more human beings made in the image of God, into this dream that we call America, that actually our scripture calls the kingdom of God. Not that America is at all the kingdom of God, but honestly, the dreams are very similar. The dream of America is that people will prosper and we'll actually be able to come together and live together. People from all various countries coming together and finding a way to live together. Well, that's not too far from the beloved community that Dr. King talked about. And the beloved community is not too far from the vision of shalom that the, that the prophets told us that God desires for us that we were created for on the first page of the Bible and even up to the second, the second chapter until the break. Um, and so when, when we formed Freedom Road, we formed it to do a very specific thing. It's to address that gap. It's to help us to, to shrink the gap between our narratives, between the narrative of what we say about ourselves and who we are versus who we really are. So that we can, we can face the decisions that we've made that have gotten us to this place and make, make decisions, make just decisions going forward. And so we do that. We do that through consulting and coaching and training. And we do that um, by, by building forums that actually help people to come together, to come to common understanding and common commitments that lead to a just world. And we do that through pilgrimage. And pilgrimage is like, it's, it's like all of, all of what I just described on, on steroids. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's everything magnified because it is the most potent way to experience a worldview shift, to be immersed in the story of the other and to walk on their land and hear from them what happened here. It forces us to deal with the, with the constructs of the narratives we have been taught through history, through history that was crafted by the victors, through history that was crafted in, in sweeping swaths where the details were left out. But anybody who knows actually the study of history, the devil and the Lord live in the details. The details matter. 
and it's it's in our own family stories and in our own people group stories that we find those details so it's one of my favorite things to do is actually to take groups on pilgrimage we have multiple pilgrimages that we do every year and then we also design pilgrimages for groups that contract with us to take their group on pilgrimage so we're actually right now actually in conversation with like Trinity United Church of Christ about taking their church um, based in Chicago on a 1619 pilgrimage um, we do a pilgrimage that is it traces the control and confinement of African bodies on US soil uh, from slavery through through mass incarceration and police brutality so we that's a sec a separate pilgrimage that we do that starts in Montgomery and goes through money Mississippi to Memphis Tennessee and ends in Ferguson on Canfield Avenue um, and we do a pilgrimage every year called the Ruby Woo pilgrimage which is uh, we roll through the story of uh, women's intersectional struggle for equality in the United States this year we're focusing on the struggle for electoral justice and that that looks like everything you know all the issues that kind of that serve as the constellation of electoral justice. They stem from everything from voting rights to gerrymandering to running for office to uh, to uh, gentrification um, to all of the issues that that impact the ability of women to fully exercise the image of God in us and the call to to steward the world within us. Um, so that happens every November, usually the first week of November, and we'll be going on the road this year. Very excited for that. But that's my favorite thing is the, is the pilgrimage thing. And then also the, the podcast. Actually, I'd say that's, that's my second favorite thing. Um, and we just did. We just did a podcast that was um, – we, we took the podcast on pilgrimage. We blended those two things. And I'm so excited for those two-part series, two episodes that are uh, in a series. It's a podcast that explicitly goes through, rolls through the story of America's uh, addiction, really, to the exploitation of imported labor, starting with slavery and then going to peonage, which of course is not imported labor, but they lost their citizenship rights when they were put in prison and so were able to be exploited. And then down to the Alamo and then down to the border, um, where we talked with people who are working for um, to protect the rights of immigrants, migrant workers, and also um, asylum seekers who are being put in for-profit prisons in our borders. So the work that we do, all of the work that we do is trying to do one thing. It's trying to help us to see what actually happened so that we can all be on more of the same page and we can all work in the same direction toward a more just world. Well, before we, we let you go, um, you talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, tell us about the book you're, you're working on. Maybe give us a peek into your MacBook. Oh, so excited. <laughs> well, I don't have a MacBook. Thank you very much. I'm a PC girl. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess we can still be friends, but I won't hold it against you. Yes, please don't hold it against me. I've just, you know, I've had a Dell for many years and before that an HP. I just, you know, I'm a loyalist. So what can I say? Um, so, but what's inside my Dell right now? Um, I, I'm so excited about this next book. God willing, it'll come out next year. Um, we're shopping it right now um, to publishers, and it will trace uh, actually 10 different generations of my family, um, and it'll be a call to reparation, looking at the question of repair. 
What will it take to repair what the constructs of race and gender broke in the world? And, um, and looking at that through the framework of my family's story. So the, the story starts um, with Sambo Game and Maudlin McGee, and then traces uh, each chapter, another, another chapter in my family's story, and also another generation. So that goes from colonial indenture to um, antebellum slavery and the Cherokee Trail of Tears, um, to the annexation of Puerto Rico, because some of my, my, on my father's side, that's where um, my grandfather came from, um, to the civil rights movement and SNCC and CORE and, um, and the, the struggle for black freedom um, that, that we talked about a little bit earlier, to, to Charlottesville and Ferguson and the current struggle that I'm finding in my current generation of my family. And I'm not arguing for my family to get reparations. That's not the point of the, of the book. The point of the book is that our family stories actually tell what I believe is actually the real history of what happened in America. And the best way for us to understand America is to understand our family stories. And once we understand our family stories, then we can, we can, really in a more concrete way understand the cost of the decisions that have been made to erect and secure human hierarchy in America. When do you think it's going to be coming out? Well, the hope is that it'll be coming out before the election. That's the goal. Um, not that it would influence the election, but that it would actually give us more of an opportunity to understand our world before we make our vote. Um, and so we're kind of shooting. We're shooting for July of next year. And so look for it. Look for it. Just keep looking for it. And the name of the book is Fortune. Well, it sounds like we'll be organizing and lining up for another interview sometime in June of next year. <laughs> That would be fabulous. That would be great. Thank you. Well, if you want to stay connected with Lisa, follow her on social media. Check out freedomroad.us and lisasharonharper.com. Lisa, thank you for your brilliant work in closing the narrative gap. And thank you for inspiring us to not feel defeated, but to rise up and keep up the good work of the kingdom. Absolutely. Keep walking forward, everybody. This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself. Other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates, and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items, and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics Shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with a free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash living earth ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters 
field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.